Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Down the Rabbit Hole. I'm your host, Anais Sim. And today we're joined by Yuri from SuperDAO. SuperDAO is the Shopify of DAOs where you can easily start, manage, and grow your own DAO. And I'm really excited for my conversation today with Yuri because we're going to talk all about DAO basics for listeners who may need a bit of a refresher. Yuri's also going to give us some insight into the key challenges facing DAOs today. And we're also going to be talking a lot about how to scale DAOs, getting into sub-DAOs and other mechanisms that Yuri has been seeing. So thank you so much for joining us today, Yuri. How are you? Good, good. Excited to be here. Yeah, super excited to have you here. Okay, so I always like to set some context for these episodes. Um, We have listeners from a diverse array of stages in their crypto journey, and you're focused all on DAOs. So Yuri, you know, how would you describe to someone what a DAO actually is? Well, there are so many definitions. Uh, the old definition was decentralized autonomous organization was coming from DeFi projects and protocols. And I think it no longer applies because most new DAO projects actually don't start decentralized or autonomous. So the new definition is it's a group of people who have the shared purpose. They have the shared financial resources, maybe a, you know a wallet or a treasury. And they act together in the pursuit of that goal. And in many cases, they produce what we can characterize as community value. So something that can be enjoyed not by individuals, which is more like what private companies produce, and not by everyone, which is what government produce, by a group of people with shared interests. I love that framing of it. And honestly, that's not something that I hear enough is really that production of community value. That's definitely a key differentiator. So Yuri, you know, how are most DAOs structured today? And obviously, that's a big question because there are a lot of different types of DAOs, but what do they look like? Yeah, so there are two kind of planes of structure. There is on-chain and traditional. So on-chain, a DAO is a smart contract. It's essentially an agreement uh, that is expressed in the form of software that describes that organization. Who owns that? Who is a member of that? Who has what kind of voting rights? Does that organization uh, control any kind of wallets, any kind of tokens or NFTs? Things like that. So some uh, DAOs have a fixed smart contract, so something that written once and never changed. Uh, some other organizations have upgradable contracts. So that means it's like a constitution, but then you can have the amendments. So you can think of that as a charter or as a constitution or as a bylaws. It's some sort of like a setup software described uh, the company. And then some DAOs, not all, also have uh, like a traditional representation. So that, that means they have also a traditional entity. It might be LLC, Delaware C Corp. It can be a foundation on Cayman Islands or in Switzerland or in Singapore and Panama, like all kinds of geographies. And some of those entities designed to actually be the same as DAO. So it's like the traditional entity that is a counterpart of a DAO. In other cases, it's more like either a parent organization or a subsidiary. So like the on-chain organization is in relationship with a traditional entity, but not necessarily in one-to-one. In most cases, the DAO would be the parent organization. So the on-chain smart contract is the big thing. And then the legal entity like LLC or Cayman Island Foundation is kind of its agent of record or its representative, its kind of real world ambassador of that organization. So to get into that though, what are the technical requirements do you think of a DAO? Is it that smart contract piece? Uh, yeah. So here's what you need to start a DAO and super DAO. Your Ethereum address. One Ethereum address, one founder. That's it. One field. You don't need your name. You don't need the name of the organization. You don't need co-founders. You don't need members, contributors. 
if you have the Ethereum address of one person who incorporates the DAO, that's it. Wow, that's pretty incredible. Okay, so then let's also get into the different types of DAOs because I feel like depending on where you're at in this space, what you're interested in, you may have like kind of a narrow definition of how you think that this plays out. But how would you categorize the different types of DAOs? Yeah, we, we did a lot of categorization and recategorization and we arrived to just four categories actually. So the first is uh, investment DAO. So investment DAO, that means that it's a people who pull money together to you know deploy them for the shared purpose of like you know making profits together, maybe actually five. Sorry, uh, the other one would be the same but nonprofit. So it's more like resource allocation. So it's a philanthropic DAO, grant making DAO where people put money together and then they decided to deploy it according to their shared or voted kind of set of priorities and interests. The next one and it's probably the biggest category is startup DAOs. It's essentially a group of people coming together. Some put money and some put uh, time and effort to build the thing they all want to exist, and then you know create some value for for themselves and for people around them. And then another one is a service DAO. A service DAO is a group of people who share a certain skills and they want to deploy those skills in a coordinated way. Uh, let's say like a hundred marketers or a hundred developers or a hundred designers. And they're like, it's like a, a distributed agency or professional service organization. Like we will collectively like source employment opportunities or we will negotiate great deals with potential kind of uh, sources of work. Uh, and then some of us will be deployed on each individual engagement and then we'll have internal tokens or whatever to figure out who contributed most or less and then we'll distribute the money. So it's, it's a little bit like mercenary guild from medieval Europe when there will be like a band of soldiers and they're like, whatever king pays, we are the army for that king. It's like the army that not belong to a government or to a single country, but can, you know, switch allegiances based on who pays. And that's kind of service DAO. And then the last one is a community DAO. It's basically a group of people who want to consume the same thing. It's like uh, sports fans or, I don't know, active uh, players of computer games or whatever, who basically want to negotiate the best deal or have this privilege of access or some governance rights. So it's a DAO uh, that represents more of a consumptive uh, uh, talent as opposed to service DAO. And then they, they engage with like different products and different kind of creators. Okay, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about it because service DAOs are something that I've been thinking about a lot, especially in a Web3 context, because, you know, we think of the traditional consulting industry, the big four, etc. And quite frankly, they don't necessarily fully understand the dynamics of what's happening in crypto on a day-to-day basis. So I'm seeing service DAOs like VectorDAO, which is a group of Web3, you know, designers and developers pop up and use their unique ability to outsource to different DAOs and in return they get tokens from those DAOs they have the vector DAO tokens it's a really like powerful cycle do you see service DAOs taking over the consulting industry do you see this as a new type of feasible work and maybe a more stable type of work within web3 yeah i i share this belief i think indeed uh service DAOs uh, can be a credible challenger to consulting industry. I would think they would start with uh, mono service DAOs, so like a single service. So like just designers, just developers, just marketers, just Discord managers, things like that. And then slowly become like a multifunction uh, DAOs, more like a studios and project project uh, teams and whatnot, like more assemble kind of engagement teams on the fly, things like that. Uh, it will be a journey. So I would say maybe 10, 15 years for... Uh, 
consulting DAOs to like truly challenge, like to eat like half the market, but uh, uh, they will grow exponentially for sure. That's super interesting. And then that also kind of takes me into my next question into some of the key challenges facing DAOs today. Yuri's talking to 500 plus DAO projects every single month. So he has incredible perspective on what's happening in the space. So really want to hear, you know, what are some of the patterns that you're seeing in terms of problems that DAOs are facing? And what are some of the key ways that they're solving these issues? Yeah, so the biggest trend over the last six months is the NFT-based DAOs is uh, the DAOs that start with NFT membership, not the tokens. Tokens are too dangerous, both in terms of security law and like being classified as a security and limitations on how you can sell tokens openly to general retail public, retail investors, and anonymous kind of people on the blockchain. So most of new DAOs that start small and grow organically they start with NFT-based membership. That allows you also to have a token-gated workspace and voting and the, the structure and sub-DAOs, everything that the token-based DAO can do. You know, NFT T stands for token, non-fungible token. So they're still token-based DAOs. It's just the NFT version of the token, not the fungible token. Vast majority of DAOs that we see today start NFT first. And this is how Super DAOs build is one of the biggest and uh, best built DAO launchpads that is, you know, catering for NFT first DAO. So that's kind of the biggest trend. The other one is contributor onboarding seems to be like a starting pain point for a lot of DAOs. So, all right, I have a DAO, I have a smart contract. We kind of, okay, we figure out tiers. So we did the airdrop, people start coming in and like, we need to educate them. We need to explain them what to expect. We need to give them a first easy task. We need to give them a first compensation or like level up. So the people understand, okay, I do this and that and I grow in stature or I grow in earnings. So the kind of it's almost like designing a tutorial level in the game. So I think that the contributor onboarding and contributor recruiting in general, kind of contributor experience, I've heard this term. So maybe CX as contributor experience is the discipline that's emerging. Uh, related to that, maybe it's the same thing, just different terms. Is it kind of incentive design or game design? People start using that term a lot in, uh, in relation to DAOs. But again, the question is, what are the formula? Like, what is the one or two sentence that describes the flow of activity and capital and reputation in the DAO experience? Okay, so who comes in? What do they do? What do they get? Like, how they progress? Another word people use is contributor loop. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. Okay, now you're leading me into this next area of conversation that I'm really interested in exploring with you. You brought up a good point about the contributor onboarding cycle. And, you know, from what I've seen in this space, it's really difficult in a DAO to scale and to build a culture of context and a culture of contribution. And something that a lot of people are pointing to right now are sub-DAOs, which can kind of be classified as working groups attached to a parent DAO, but that share resources with that parent DAO to maintain alignment. And I'd love to hear your definition of it. But let's dive into this for a second, because I think it's an interesting uh, mechanism that's starting to take shape. So first off, what is a sub-DAO? Well, a sub-DAO is a new organization that typically is uh, some sort of connected in a very tight way to original DAO that has a more narrow mission, uh, typically more kind of functional, like maybe more related to treasury, more related to marketing, more related to development, more related to content creation or to meme creation. Can you talk a bit more about that alignment to the parent DAO? How does that actually play out and how important is it for the sub-DAO to be aligned to the parent DAO? Well, it's 
pretty straightforward in the basic terms, which is the parent DAO says, hey, we need some marketing. And the marketing people say, yeah, we can do some marketing for you, but we don't want the full DAO vote. We don't want every decision to be approved by the full membership. So how about this? Uh, you guys vote for our annual or seasonal or quarterly budget. Uh, you give us that budget. Uh, you appoint our executive director or council or stewards or, I don't know, a multi-sig group that is in charge of the spending from that budget. And then you kind of fuck off. And then like, let us do our work. Give us some autonomy. Basically, it's it's a pursuit of the autonomy. So the, 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 the department has the autonomy from the parent organization, primarily on money spending. So basically, give us our quarterly or monthly or annual budget for our marketing or development or whatever. Uh, give us autonomy to decide how to spend it without the full Canada uh, vote. And then we figure it out internally. Maybe we'll have internal grant program or we have internally people on staff, kind of part-time, full-time, grant-based, retroactive funding, whatever. And then we'll do the work, we'll do reporting, we'll do transparency for the parent DAO so the parent DAO can audit our expenses and flow of money so they can actually see where money went. And if like we were bad at spending, they'll just not give us the, the budget next quarter or next month. And so they might, you know, liquidate, liquidate subdao, severe ties and like restart the subdao for the marketing or like re like change the elected uh, multi-sigma members of that subdao. So all of that is possible. But essentially it's it's a it's a way to delegate uh, both responsibility and the authority over budget and area of work. It's interesting because I feel like a big part of decentralization and everyone has their own perspectives about it, but is this democratization of decision-making power? But quite frankly, we live in a country, right, where it's hard to get half the population to vote in a national election. So within a DAO, it's hard to get people to vote on different proposals. And that's even harder when they don't have context on those decisions and what's actually happening behind the scenes. So the way that I'm internalizing what you're saying about sub-DAOs, it's people who have eyes and ears into that process are the ones who are actually making those decisions. And in that sense, it becomes a seamless and more efficient process. Is that correct? Yeah. So it's a delegating down the work chart, uh, but specifically functionally. So that means the sub-DAOs typically match the functional structure of a DAO. So like treasury, marketing, content, uh, development, uh, business partnerships, uh, things like that. Right, exactly. So it's kind of like people can think about it as well as like how departments would work in a traditional organization. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. And then and then there are like a different versions of that relationship. So there can be a sub-DAO that is fully within the, under full control of existing DAO, or you can delegate off to external sub-DAO. So there would be a sub-DAO that not related. So you say, oh, let's engage that group of people as our marketing department, or it can be a service DAO. And a service DAO and acts as a sub-DAO to multiple DAOs. So a service DAO, like design DAO, or like a Discord moderator DAO, can be a moderator for like 10 different unrelated projects. Okay, there we go. The service DAO is coming back up again. I'm glad that we set that content. Yeah, they can, st- they can for example, they can start as a department for a single DAO and like, hey, we, we can do that for 10 more DAOs. So they kind of spin off from the parent DAO and like become an independent service DAO and start, you know, serving a bunch of other DAOs. But then... I mean, I guess it depends on the organization, but then are they, maybe contractually isn't the right word, but are they obligated to spend a certain amount of time on their parent DAO because there's alignment in terms of the treasury? Yeah, so this is one of the magic words of DAO economy that we need to repeat again and again and again. And that word is part-time. 
it's all about part-time. So it's like everyone is part-time, like you're never full-time. And uh, that's the beauty of it. Like you might have a boring day job and I don't know, Citibank or whatever. And then you create a, like a ETH address and like a pseudonym uh, and like uh, bought like avatar or whatever. And then you start contributing here and there and no one knows that you have a day job and no one knows how many DAOs you're part of and uh, how many identities you have. And so uh, it's all about part-time. And so it's very much against Web3 culture to insist that your contributors to your DAO, like, I don't know, solely dedicated, like monogamous, monogamously dedicated to your DAO. I like that. I think that's an important framing of it. And also, you know, if I'm a marketing person and I'm contributing my marketing efforts to different DAOs in the Web3 space, that also gives me a unique perspective that I can apply to all of those roles and responsibilities. So that kind of unlocks a different type of magic as well. Yeah, yeah. So another analogy is you think of DAO as a fluid form of talent allocation, where talent flows to where it's most efficient. While in the previous world, it's more like static and more like solid and more like fixed like, you work there for the next five years. Good things, bad things, things they're good at, things you're bad at, things you're average at. Well, in, in the DAO world, you can only do the things they are amazing at in all the places where they can use basically your work. Well, then, Yuri, that also brings up, you know, contributor retention, right? So we kind of started off a bit talking about that contributor feedback loop. How is that playing out in DAOs when it is such like a fluid allocation of talent? Yeah, terrible. I mean, <laughs> I mean, the the the, the bad it is for contributors, the worse it is for DAOs. So the the only answer is so the best DAO contributors they are looking for two types of return. They are looking for financial return and they are looking for reputation or status uh, or social capital return. So essentially, what you do, you design a ladder of success. You say like junior contributor or associate contributor, contributor, senior contributor, executive member, council member, guardian steward, I don't know, multi-sig, gnosis, god, whatever. And so uh, when people start <laughs> switching between DAOs, they lose the progression. So you say, stay with my DAO, then you can get level up, level up, level up. And so then you can tell everyone that not only you like earn some tokens here, but you are now like a gnosis, demigod, whatever, at Uniswap or something. And you all, that, that's something that goes on resume, on Twitter, or on something, and then People become proud of how high of a stature or a level they have. You start being people being proud of things like core contributor or like steward or like executive team or like a veto power member of that DAO or something. That's interesting. And honestly, I feel like that's not something that I hear talked about a lot. You know, those softer incentivization mechanisms, which would also obviously, you know, parallel the amount of compensation that I'd hope a contributor is getting towards a DAO. But that's a really good point. Actually, uh, Uber does something similar. So if you're like uh, monogamous with Uber and you don't drive Lyft, then they give you high commission or they give you better rides or things like that. So they actually have the incentives building. We don't know as passengers, but drivers know that basically if you drive half a day, then you get a better, worse rate than a full day. And if you ride a full day for Uber, then you have no time to ride for a competing network. So basically you get better rates if you like serve more of the same DAO. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we're also talking about it's a lot of the DAO's responsibility too to create those mechanisms to incentivize contributors to want to stay, whether or not it's they create, you know, that upward mechanism for mobility, the way they treat their contributors, the onboarding process, etc. So the onus is really on us here to set a good culture of contribution. Yep. 
Yep. And that they make it easy and transparent, like just clarity. What should I do? Like, yeah. what's the task? What's the task here? It's half the, half the thing is like, other half is like, what do I get? But the first thing is like, what do you expect me to do? Yeah, exactly. 100%. Okay. I want to shift a little bit because again, not every day that I get to talk to someone who has so much oversight, you know, over what's happening in the DAO space. So we talked about sub DAOs as one way to scale a DAO and to scale a community. What are some other tactics that you've been seeing that have played out successfully? Basically, the scaling mechanics on the customer side of the DAO and on the contributor side of the DAO, they are slightly different. So the distribution side of things, basically, there are incentives around this. So it's like you're like, how we reward people who like customers of the DAO? Can we reward them maybe with tokens or better rates or whatever if they bring other people to the network? On contributor side, I would say maybe standardization. So like you start codifying the processes and something that lived before in Notion or Google Docs and Typeforms starts becoming its own software. And that way, the the most scalable DAOs they become uh, DAO tooling producers because they start building internal. DAO tools just for themselves and then kind of productizing the workflows. You've heard this kind of pave, paving the cows uh, paths type of thing. So yeah, basically they start doing that. So start building internal products to streamline contributor onboarding, contributor payments, contributor tasks, this and that and so on. And that way uh, the companies like Rabbit Hole and even maybe SuperDAO, uh, one of the kind of source of competition for us is the internal tools of the most successful biggest DAOs. So yeah, so they, they will invest in internal tools. So, and then they can spin them off and make them in protocols and things like that. Yeah, another way to scale is actually go from application level to the protocol level. This is a huge one. So let's say, for example, you build a DAO as a recruiting agency. So you build a recruiting agency, you have a token, anyone who discovered the talent and bought the talent, get a token. Employer needs to buy a token to get access to your talent base, things like that. Let's say you run it, it's great, but you run it in English, you run it in the United States, you run it for salespeople, design and engineers. You don't know much about different geographies, different levels of expertise, different countries, different industries. And so you want to like make others to build a similar DAO, but you don't give them as a software, you give them like an underlying protocol. So like these token incentives and math mathematics behind like who should get how much and for what. And then they can build their own interfaces, their own like logos, whatever, but it all runs on the same protocol. And so instead of being an application level company, you become a protocol level DAO. So for example, like a super DAO right now, you need to go to super DAO website and press one big button to say, I want to create a DAO. But in the future, it can be that, I don't know, any Etsy store or any Shopify store can press a button in Shopify on Etsy or in Airbnb and create a DAO for their small and medium business, not go into SuperDAO at all. So that would be a SuperDAO going from an application level kind of central hub to, to a protocol level kind of invisible infrastructure for business formation. So that's another big way how things are scaling. That's really interesting that you bring that up. I was reading something the other day, I, I forget who it was, but it was an investor in the space and he was essentially saying that for him, the sign of crypto going mainstream is when crypto is invisible. So exactly what you're just saying, when it's built into the infrastructure. So SuperDAO makes it super easy for anyone, anywhere to start a DAO. Exactly what you're saying, simply with an ETH address. Do you think that starting DAO is something that every individual, every entity should be doing? Or is it better tailored for certain types of companies than others? 
Eventually. We're not ready to serve every organization, but basically at some point, if there are two people who decide together how to spend 100 bucks, that's a DAO. As long as like it's more than one person collectively decided how to get money, how to store money, how to spend money and in transparent and like uh, controllable way. Yeah, that's a DAO. Uh, there will be verticals that will adopt it faster, like startups and investment firms and things like that. Uh, but eventually everyone also like anything international, anything that includes few people from different places, anything digital, anything online, anything inside games, anything that resembles marketplace. Uh, so those, so all those places will be coming first and then, you know, a coffee shop in the corner, uh, probably not the first one, but again, once, once they have the, the point of sales kind of system, like square is now a crypto company and the, 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 this corner coffee shop is accepting Square. So they, they become a crypto-enabled company soon as well. Exactly. And then to really crystallize this for our listeners here, you know, what are the key benefits of being a DAO? Uh, there are three. Uh, fundraising, growth, and employment. So fundraising is like you essentially sell flexible financial products to raise money. Before, you would sell shares, like Delaversity Corp. You would sell shares to investors. Uh, and uh, get money to get going. Now you can sell NFTs, you can sell token warrants, you can sell tokens, you can uh, sell some sort of like staking rewards or whatever. So basically you, there are so many ways that you can like promise certain contractual kind of future return mechanism or revenue shares uh, or if you're a musician or whatever. So you can sell like revenue-based financing. So there are so many product financial products that you as a startup can sell uh, as, a, as a DAO. Uh, to to finance your future growth. So that's kind of one. Uh, the second is growth. So you can uh, invite ambassadors and influencers, YouTubers, whatever, as contributors. Uh, again, uh, give them some materials to distribute and maybe they will co collaborate on the product itself as well. And then they bring people from their circles of influence and then they become co-owners and like equity-based upside kind of oriented compensation, unlike the brand deals YouTubers have today when it's primarily cash only and they don't have any upside if they build a big iconic brand. And then number three is employment. So again, instead of having you know, like a full-time employment through like, I don't know, Gusto or something, you would invite people to, you know, participate. They might get paid retroactively. They might pay through proposals. They might be part-time, full-time. They can be anonymous. They can be kids. They can be people from all kinds of countries and look different than we look. Everyone is judged solely by the input and uh, it's kind of new, more merit meritocratic uh, way to do things. Also, you can employ like a, th a thousand people in a week, so they, which is like impossible under traditional employment. Mm -hmm. I really like that you bring up that last point in particular, because that's something we're really passionate about at Rabbit Hole, right, is building people's on-chain resume and providing a more objective form of comparison between individuals where, you know, your social capital isn't as important as what you've actually done on chain, which I think, well, you know, totally shift the way that we view employment in this day and age. Okay, Yuri, again, you have incredible perspective here. So where do you see DAOs 10 years from now? And I know 10 years sounds like 100 years in crypto time, and it's hard to predict, but curious on that and also the impact that you hope SuperDAO will have in helping to achieve that future. Yeah, uh, so answering the first question, where DAOs will be, uh, above Spain. So that means like, <laughs> that means if you like share the countries in by GDP, so I want the DAO economy be above Spain and France. 
uh, somewhere in top 10 economies in the world. So that means probably 100 million people employed, uh, like contributing and earning money by, by doing work for DAOs. Specifically SuperDAO, our mission is to help launch a million DAOs. I love it. I love it. I I haven't heard that framing of it either. You know, really like comparing it to physical locations that we're familiar with is helpful context there. Yuri, this has been such an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. I feel like I learned so much and I hope the listeners did too. For those that want to follow along with you, uh, want to learn more about SuperDAO or start a DAO of their own through SuperDAO, uh, where can they find you guys? Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm on Twitter. My full name, Euro Lifshitz, in one word. I'm also on Telegram, just my last name, Lifshitz. SuperDAO.co, our website. You can apply there. We're currently in private beta, but we start onboarding more and more projects. So the project get approved pretty fast. And uh, yeah, we also started a YouTube channel called DAO Heroes. Uh, we put there tutorials and some interviews and uh, good learning resource as well. Yes, I have to plug that uh, in prepping for this interview. I was stalking some of those and it's great content. So everyone should definitely check it out. Again, thank you so much, Yuri, for coming on. Really appreciate uh, having this conversation with you. And we'll see everyone on the next episode of Down the Rabbit Hole. Bye, guys. Bye, everyone.